0: Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I'm going to be reading Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word written by this author, carried along by the Holy Spirit to our hearts, to our souls, to our minds, to our faith, to our hope. In Jesus' name. Father, thank you for such a wonderful presence by your Spirit. You know, we got to participate in singing and worship, true worship and adoration of Affection of our hearts, all because of the blood of Jesus. You're good. Continue to glorify Him in the preaching of the Word, in the hearing of this text, and work in our hearts that which is pleasing in your sight, to the glory of your Son, to the sanctification of the souls of your saints, and to the salvation of those who need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the gist of this short little passage. Every human being is absolutely dependent upon their maker. Much more than they know, much more than any of us who even say those words think we know. Right there in verse 3. If God permits. So, we're going to get there. But first, notice chapter 6, verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. In other words, remember the context based upon what we've seen the last couple weeks. Based upon Verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5. Therefore, let us go on to maturity. In other words, the context, remember, because you have become dull of hearing. You reverted back to being baby Christians. You're immature. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, he exhorts the readers to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of these six doctrines he lays out. So first, what are these six doctrines he lays out that are foundational, he says? And he says, Leave them behind. Go forward. First, let me just say, there are two main views on what he's referring to out there and people thinking through this text. One is that those six doctrines are at the core basic Jewish cultural and theological teachings. Secondly, or the other view. Is that no no no. These are basic Christian doctrines. Okay, so let's look at it. Just so you know where I'm what I here, here's my here's my take on it up front. I think he's referring to Jewish cultural Old Testament and remember the the, the readers are Jews as a whole, who have been converted to Christianity. And these were foundational doctrines in the preaching of the gospel to them. That's my take. So let's, let, let's look at it. First notice, there's six of them, and the way he l- literally does it in, in the original, he just like two, two, and two together. So the first two, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Dead works are the opposite of good works, Dead works are works that lead to death. Old Testament was clear on this. Like Deuteronomy chapter 28. Do this, these dead works, and you'll be destroyed. Walk this way, meaning trust in me, trust in me, and it'll go good for you. So repentance from dead works is turning away from Rebellion and a a lack of faith in God and turning to trusting His Word. And that leads to his second, right? Faith in God. Basic Old Testament teaching throughout. Turn from your sinful works and trust Yahweh. Second group. Washings. Teachings or doctrines of washings and laying on of hands. Okay, now that's if you have an ESV in front of you. The the King James Version, the New King James and the NIV translate it, teaching of baptisms. And the reason they do that, because the Greek word that's being translated is the word baptismon, which is the plural, of the word baptism, so we got baptisms, or remember baptism is it's dipping in water, it's washing, so how shall it be understood? I mean, does he mean differing baptisms like Jewish proselyte converting Gentiles to Judaism through that baptism? Does he mean John the Baptist baptism? Christian baptism? The Qumran communities baptism? the holy spirit baptism all those kind of things can come to one's mind or does he mean the, 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 the all these old testament cultural laws of washing or cleansing in water okay or proselyte baptism conversion laying on of hands this was a widespread practice You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. Hands were laid upon new converts. Timothy had the elders lay hands upon him and imparting the gift. The apostles laid hands upon those in connection with receiving the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. In the Old Testament, you have the high priest laying his hands on the scapegoat. Signifying taking the sins of the people and then let the goat go off into the wilderness. There's a picture of Christ, maybe. The last two. The resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Old Testament teachings, too. Probably, I think, refers to the resurrection of individuals that we see hinted at and said in the Old Testament, of even of the just and the unjust, like, for example, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Teachings of the resurrection and of eternal judgment. Foundational teaching in the Old Testament and within Judaism of an eternal judgment of the just and the unjust. It's coming. All right. He says these six doctrines, leave them. Remember, two interpretive views. Are they basic Christian doctrines he's referring to, or are they Jewish doctrines? But we've got to bring one more thing in, I think, for me that puts me over the edge uh, in thinking that they're Jewish, and that is this. What he's just said a few verses earlier in verse 12 of chapter 5, compared to what he says here. So, how, what are you saying, author to the Hebrews? In other words, How does his saying, don't keep dwelling on, reteaching these six foundational doctrines, how does that fit with what he said in chapter 5, verse 12? You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of Christ. Do we or do we not? Unless he means something different in those two verses. So this is what I think he means, that the foundation that they do not need to lay again and again and spend so much time on is the religious teachings that they were brought up in as Jews. Which were used in evangelism to them as the connection that you see Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all of these. And it leads to Christ in the basic Christian doctrines. The teaching that they need about the basics is how those are used as types and shadows To point you to Jesus. And the whole point we have seen for weeks is that now you've got to take that gospel and you have to apply it in order to actually grow up. So in the context, laying a foundation again here, I think means they have been ignoring. They've been turning back to their Jewish upbringing. Teachings. Some cultural, some just foundational theological, and behind or in between the words, this is what I think he's doing, because this is the problem that's happening with this group of Christians. They are feeling left out. they experience in a type of Persecution from fellow, unbelieving in Christ, Jews. But that's their whole life. That's their culture. And what are they going to do? And the author is basically saying the pressure you're under by your fellow cultural that you share together with the unbelieving Jews is causing you to pay so much more attention than you ought because you want to be accepted to the types and to the shadows instead of to the reality that they pointed to. And you knew this numbers of years ago when you came to Christ. He's the goal, the telos, the end of all the law. of Moses was all pointing to Him. So, stop concentrating, laying a foundation again and again in your old cultural Jewish upbringing. So, in the writer's mind, a foundation for the understanding of Christ, which they used when the gospel came to them. That is different from teaching, like in chapter 5, verse 12, that they need teaching about Christ and how to live in Christ on the basis of those foundational teachings. So, the foundation that they're evangelized on, so I think he's saying these six doctrines, because they're Jews, and therefore they're not distinctively Christian. They were the bridge. They're made up of the foundational Old Testament and Jewish truths and practices about which the gospel, when it came, they saw was the fulfillment of them. So as one commentator on the book of Hebrews, Ellingworth says it, quote, the list contains nothing distinctively Christian. And of course, nothing exclusively Jewish." End quote. All of these doctrines he lays out were common Old Testament beliefs and cultural practices Among the Jews. When they were evangelized, use them just like we use the Old Testament all the times when it comes to types and shadows, pointing to Christ and like this writer will do incessantly throughout the rest of this letter. Jesus is the goal. He's the fulfillment that all of those things We're pointing to, so he's saying, "Stop your preoccupation with these pre-Christian foundations of cultural washings and theology." Which does it's also judgment, resurrection. Yes, how come Christ is the resurrection and the life? God's determined to. Judge all mankind by a man, proving it, by raising him from the dead. Judgment day is coming. These are the things they heard. Those were the connections. Stop laying that foundation. But as we saw last week, okay, now you reverted back to being a baby. And he said in chapter 5, verse 12, you do need this. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. That is the teaching they need, is how to use the basics of Christian foundational doctrine coming out of those and how to develop so as to mature and not remain dull of hearing and not be a baby. It's what we saw from verse 14 of chapter 5 last week. Learn how to drink the milk doctrine, because now you can't handle meat. Learn how to drink the milk. How do you do that? You don't just hear it. You, by constant practice, get sanctified. By constant practice, Your discerning powers of what is right and what is wrong and how shall I live is being developed. Their need is not to repeat those foundational bridge doctrines at all. Their need is to get Christ and to live it out and continue to drink and then they'll get more solid food. And what happens is, quote, Their powers of discernment will have been being trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. That's the point, right, of verse 1. Look at it. Here's the whole point. Let us go on to maturity. That's the maturity. Constant practice, having your powers of discernment trained to discern good from evil. How? Seek the milk of how to live, how to live and walk and act in Christ. Practice it. You don't need to spend time on your cultural background as Jews because you feel left out. You'll say it later in the book. Jesus suffered outside Jerusalem. take the persecution of your culture go outside the camp with him that's my best shot at what he's doing there and then he seems to depending on how you take it out of nowhere it just goes bam he sets down a big massive piece of meat Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. For the first 10 years of my Christianity, I used to take that line and many, many, many lines like it all over the Old Testament and all over the New Testament. I used to take them as Christianese. It's just throw away lines that's how religious people talk but i mean come on okay just how are you supposed to say it not anymore i'm convinced those eight english words there is foundational to this writer's understanding of god's sovereignty he says to them and to us we will grow up, and we will move on to maturity, if God permits it. What is this if? Does that mean He, he might not permit it? He, he might not. Permit my pressing on to maturity? That's the question. So first let's notice the word this. And this we will do if God permits. So what is the this referring to? What is that demonstrative pronouns? It's antecedent. What, is he, what does he mean? What's the this? Okay. I just want to pause. Just give you, you can even think about it first. Okay. So, some people take it to mean those six doctrinal teachings. I said, let's leave these behind. Okay, come on, let's move on. And we may come back and teach those all over again. In other words, this we will do, teach those again. I mean, if God permits. That's grammatically possible in the original. But, but nothing changes when it comes to God's sovereignty. Because Paul says, if that were the right interpretation, which you're going to see in a moment, I don't think that's what he's talking about. But if it were, it's still, Paul says, look, if we get back, or not Paul, (laughs) the writer to the Hebrews says, if we get back and, 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 and get to teaching these six doctrines again, and we do it, oh, then we know it's only because God allowed it. Okay, but... I don't think that's what it means. I think the flow of the text points to the main verb in verse 1, translated, go on. Let us go on to maturity. That verb is therometha, strange because it's a passive voice here. He and the readers are not the subject. Another is God. It's carrying this connotation, this nuance, in other words, of being carried along to maturity, meaning by God. And so the flow is let us go on by, by, by God to maturity. Let us do this, here's the command, and we will do this if God permits it. So, that's my exegesis. Let's think about the implications, if I'm right, of this powerful set. We will pursue Christ, continue on. We will start to eat meat. We will put into practice the word of God. We will be being sanctified and and pursuing, as he would say later, holiness. As sinful Christians who who love God and endure up His Spirit, This is going to happen if God allows it. First observation is God is in Christ control of your sanctification. Every professing baptized believer in there, he is in control. And where he is in control, in that same driver's seat, you're not in that seat. None of us are. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul says this from 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7, just a short line because the the grammar is essentially the same as what the Hebrew writer is doing here. It's not a throwaway line to Paul. I hope, Corinthians, to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Now... Paul is not saying, I wake up every morning and the Lord speaks to me. Oh, I'm not supposed to go today. Okay, I don't think that's all what he means. He says, this is what my desire, but he knows if it doesn't happen, God was sovereign over it. He didn't permit it. He Didn't permit it. Didn't permit it. Here, but he knows now, here's my desire. I want to get there. But he knew that if he doesn't get there, then God didn't permit it. He knew that if he gets there, God permitted it. We will go on to maturity if God permits. God decides ultimately if and at what pace or how fast we advance in spiritual growth. Now, if, turn to the back of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13, for a moment, to the writer's benediction. Listen to how he closes it. You have, I use this as a benediction often in Sunday morning church services. Starting with verse 20, he writes Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, that's all the subject of Clause of the verb. So let's go, don't, don't get confused with that. He, so Who's the subject? The God of peace. So verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will. And here it is again. Working, defining, this is God working in us as He is working in us, what? That which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever. Does He mean it? If if He means and knows what He's saying, we can take Him at His word and the structure of His grammar. Either God works in us what is pleasing to Him or he doesn't. Now, one other example in the book of Hebrews by the same writer, chapter 12, turn back a page. The Esau incident. Starting with verse 16, here's his flow. And and, and notice like ours, where we're commanded to go on to maturity, here he says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For why do you exhort us that way? Because you know that afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, went, I want all of the inheritance. He was rejected for or because he found literally no place, meaning within him, to repent. Even though he sought it with tears. Esau was rejected. He so profaned the grace of God that he was no longer able to repent. Even though he had this, I want the prize. I was just hungry that day when he sold it to his brother. And God had forsaken him. The grace of repentance was removed. And so the writer to the Hebrews is warning, beware of being like Esau because God governs the progress of sanctification. and He is not obligated to grant repentance to anyone. Our pursuit of constant practice, training, our that, that intuition between good and evil, in other words, our pursuit of spiritual maturity. Are you pursuing it? Okay, great, keep going. It is all of grace, though. One movement by God to let go of you. You will never turn to Him again. We all, by nature, born into this world, born of Adam, are rebellious. And we're guilty before God. He owes no one grace. He knows no one the power of grace that changes our hard hearts. Our rebellion to softness. Seeing Him and loving Him whom we see. If God leaves us to our rebellion like He did Esau, He has done no wrong. He is righteous. He is just to do so. We all deserve only punishment in light of our sin. We don't deserve to be rescued. So if any of us in here have been saved, in other words, the gospel came to us that says you can't do anything. You can't turn over a new leaf in your life and thus God will respond and say, you're good enough now and I'll save you. You heard God's good news of Jesus Christ. That the eternal God, the Son, became a human being. In order to uphold God's glory, to save you and saving you in it, it took His substitutionary death where the Father slaughtered His Son in His true humanity for sin. And you heard it. And you heard God raising from the dead with all these testimonies. And in hearing, you believed. Is that you? You're saved. And it is is all of mercy and grace. 100%. And if we persevere, according to the book of Hebrews... It's all about perseverance now. If we persevere in our love for Christ to the end, in our pursuit and battling our sinfulness and hanging on to the hope, if we do that, it's all of grace. He says, this we will do if God permits it. And if He chooses not to permit it, He's not coming against anyone's good, God-Christ-centered loving will. Oh no, I'm not gonna, I know that you really love me a lot and want to pursue me, but I'm gonna let make you not. He's not doing that at all. He is not coming against a Godward will in any person when he chooses not to. He is just leaving the person to their own bad will. When we are moving toward maturity. Hunger for God. We should just wring our hands with, like, that is amazing. Lord, thank you. Thank you that I woke up again. When you, and, and as you sin, because we all do, you, you, you're, you're undone and will be to the end, dear Christian. But you say, oh, gosh, help me. That cry itself, you should say, thank you that that's in me today. Because that's all owing to His present, ongoing, powerful grace. Now, let's do what some of the, Puritans in the 1600s used to do a lot in sermons. I don't do it this way <laughs> a lot, but okay, there you go. Exegesis application. Uh, let's do it this way. Now we're getting the larger theological. Okay, Theologically, what, what are you saying? What's happening here? What's behind this? So here we go. There's a difference between God's will of decree and His will of command. Everything God has ever decreed, this is how this word is being used by me right now in theologians for centuries. When God decrees something to be, or come to pass, in His creation, it cannot not happen. That's different than His will of command. My will is that you, you don't murder. Can they come against that will? We humans? All the time. So, for instance, God's command is this. Go on to maturity by constant practice of the Word in your life. That's His Word of command to us. His decree may be, I decree that this person do so. And I decree that that person there, not go on to maturity. I don't permit it. Okay. The the clearest illustration of God's decree and God's command, these two distinct wills within God, the clearest is the death of Jesus. God commands, thou shalt not murder. And that same God decreed that his son be murdered. You know the text, there's numbers of them, but here's a very clear one. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together, they're praying, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Jesus, there were gathered together both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What Herod, Pilate, and the Sanhedrin, and the crowd yelling, crucify Him! Judas's betrayal, all of that was sin, rebellion, wickedness in their hearts and actions. Sin against God's commands. And it was all predestined by God to occur. He decreed it. God's will of command and His sovereign will of decree. Whatever He wants, they're not the same. He forbids murder and He decrees the murder of His Son for His eternal, wise, infinite, glorious goal of glorifying Himself. In saving sinners. So, does God sin? By decreeing that sin be? The answer is absolutely not. All sin is measured up against one's relationship with God. As God has His own relationship with God and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All sin is rebellion against God. All sin is a diminishing of the glory of God. All sin is a rebellion against the, the majesty of who God is. That's why sin is sin for all of us creatures who come against it. And God never comes against Himself. Ever. Why is it not sin? Because everything that He decrees, He decrees with His own glory. God is at the center of it all in every move He makes. So, for instance, look, did God will to create a universe where sin And rebellion against Him would certainly come to pass? I I think the answer is obviously yes. It's the one we have. But also according to Scripture, He did this. He
1: did this
0: for the extension of His glory through mercy which demands the backdrop of rebellion and sin. It's Paul's argument in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And for God therefore to decree that sin be is therefore not sinful. It's the essence of wisdom and goodness and the ultimate good of honoring God. So, what do we do? I think we sang it. I forget the, word, the way we said it. Stuff. I'm so bad at memory, but while I'm singing it, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's how I'm going to That's how I'm going to close out that sermon. That's what we do. Let God be God. Don't strip him of any of his glory. Get to know him in it. Now, also, therefore, do not mishear anything that was said. That is who God is. Nevertheless, His will of command to you still stands. We are to obey the command to press on to maturity stop being dull of hearing when we get into that to repent, to grow, to put into practice the word God's sovereignty in that action of ours it doesn't remove our obligation here's the thing it enables it Christian that's what enables us to go on. You remember how Paul put it in Philippians two, twelve to thirteen. Work out your own salvation with fear of unbelief rising in your heart, manifested by your rebellion, disobedience. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and then the second part four. It is, meaning because it is God, Christian, who's at work in you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. So, finally then, as we're reading through Hebrews, why does the author throw that in there in verse 3? In this context of exhortation, real strong words going on week after week here. I think the answer is because He knows and He wants them to know and He wants us to know. There is no better place to take this truth that you must press on there's no better place to say, I've got to press on tomorrow and the next day than into the sovereign hands of your heavenly Father. And rest it there. The context is he wants to awaken the, the church from dull hearing. He's warning again and again against unbelief rising up in their hearts. He wants to beckon them to grow up by trusting God's word which produces maturity. And so he says, do this! And then he says, rest all of your doing in this. This we will do if God permits. That should draw you, dear believer, intimately close to Him in your quiet time. So, as we pass out the bread and the cup, and if you're a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus, You take of them, you hold. We'll pray over them together. But let's use here what it's meant to be used for. The body and the blood of Christ through the word He's been preparing our hearts. And know this then as we're going to partake, eat and drink together this truth. We treasure Christ, We love Jesus. Believer, that's the proof. If that's true of you, that's the proof of God's sovereign work of grace in you. And that's the same grace that we eat and place all of our hope for tomorrow in. He's got me. Because everyone who is His, He has declared it is His will of decree to permit you to move on in sanctification. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We love you. We love your word. We love your Son. Oh, dear Jesus, what each of us needs so desperately and constantly, Lord, is communion with you, corporately here, and privately in our prayer closets, in our walk throughout the week. You are good. You are faithful. You are true. Amen.